Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Big Questions with Big John. Uh, as you could probably tell, I'm your host, Big John, and with me, I'm very uh, pleased to have with me the very lovely and talented and super funny and ambitious. I don't know what other adjectives to use, so I'll just say, here's Stacy Pressman. Stacy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Big John. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, thank you so much. If only all the ladies spoke to me in that manner, <laughs> I'd be a very happy man for the rest of my life. But alas, that's not the case. But uh, for those of you, the few of you that may not be aware of who Stacy is, let me look over here and give you a little bit of a bio. Stacy Pressman is a national touring headlining stand-up comic, a radio host, actress, <laughs> and public speaker. How's that? Uh, you might have seen her or heard her on various high-profile shows like The Howard Stern Show on Sirius XM, Race Wars, uh, and then a couple of guys that I loved hanging around with at Sirius, Sam Roberts, uh, Ron Bennington's show, John Fugglesang's show. So she's she's been around with the biggies at Sirius. Uh, she's been on a lot of popular podcasts like More Stories. Uh, she's over at Compound Media with Anthony Cumia, Artie Lang's show, um, and in 2014, she even had her own terrestrial radio show with the Reverend Bob Levy called Ears Wide Open, I believe. Yeah. Uh, but as if that's not enough, being a very funny person touring the country and being on, in all these on all these shows, Stacy decided she had just a little bit of time left in her life, so she decided to run for mayor of New York City as the Libertarian candidate in 2021. And I'm sure there's a lot of war stories we could go over. Uh, about that, which I'd love to do. Sure. But let, let's start at the beginning, as Homer said. Uh, how did you get involved in stand-up comedy, uh, Stacy? I hear that's a very rough industry, especially for women to break into. Well, I, you know, I started in 2002, so it's been mm. quite a while. I was, I, you know, I was a performer for my whole life since I was a child. I was an actor, an actress, whatever you know, gender <laughs> you want to give it. Um, I say actor. A person that pretends to be other people, gotcha. and I um, I actually sort of met a lot of comedians prior to actually stepping on stage as a comic. Like Jackie Mason was a sort of an influence to mm. get me on stage. My friend Rick Shapiro, these are the people that were sort of my friends, and like they like want you try it because they saw me do a lot of improv in the show I was in in the '90s. So mm -hmm. right after 9/11, about eight months later. I stepped on stage and I never got off as a comic. And that's kind of how it happened. Wow. So so I've heard some other female comedians, uh, I think like Sarah Silverman and uh, maybe Amy Schumer, I think at one point or another, say that they they really had to fight through this almost glass ceiling of uh, female comedians getting paid less at, at, at the clubs and having uh, a rougher time a booking slots and booking time. Did you run across that or did you feel that you were treated fairly in your experiences, especially coming up? I think it's a mixture. I got a lot of, um, on the road, like we've never had a female comic here before. And the, the club had been open 20 years, you know, this mm. is like in the mid two thousands. And now there's so many female comics now. I, you know, hundreds, you know, and they're very funny. So I think there was definitely a block of females, uh, mm. A block, not a block, a blockage towards female comedians back then more. And, you know, I think it's opening up a lot more. There's female run clubs, female bookers. Um, basically, funny is funny. So if you're funny, you'll get booked if you're not, you know. And I'm a person that believes I don't care your race, gender, uh, 
nationality, whatever. If you're funny, that I'll book you. You know, I I don't like cast casting on uh, types for stand up. I just like funny mm-hmm. people. So that's me right. personally. You know. Right. Well, you know, comedy is super subjective, right? Uh, more so perhaps than some other things in life. Uh, uh, my wife and I've been married for thirty years. I don't think we've laughed at the same thing once. You know, she has her sense of humor. I have mine. We get along great. But when it comes to who laughs at what, two completely different things, right? Right. Um, so in that sense, let me ask you this. Like, certainly for someone of my advanced years, I mean, I grew up uh, with the George Carlins, with the Richard Pryors, you know, when I was a kid and listening to Red Fox. And uh, so to me, uh, free speech and absolute free speech is super paramount in every aspect of life, but especially in, in comedy and stand-up comedy, comedy in particular. Um, now I I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a stand-up comic. I like, I love stand-up comedy as an observer, but I don't have the goal to get on stage and be funny. I mean, I'm, I, I, I can consider myself a comedy writer of sorts, but mm-hmm. getting up on stage, I'd be terrified. I, I give you all <laughs> props for getting up on stage. Right. But one of the things, obviously, that a lot of people talk about that even, that anyone notices is this move to censor comedians on stage mm-hmm. and not just to censor them because that would be too overt, right? You can't say these these are the seven dirty words. You can't use them, blah, blah, blah. But it's more like, okay, go up. But if you say something offensive in a nightclub, especially, we're going to make sure you never get work again. We're going to make sure if you don't live and portray the right image as a comedian you're never going to get work again. And, you know, it, nobody's immune to it, right? Right. Uh, even Chappelle. Now, he was probably the one that withstood it the, the best, right, because of his stature. Um, maybe to a lesser extent, Louis C.K., even though he was sidelined for, what, a, a year or two, right? But for, other, a, re- for other reasons. Yeah, but but you're right. But it didn't help that his act was also not, you know, like Jerry Seinfeldish, right? But... Do you feel that's still the case? Is it getting worse? Is it plateauing? Is it getting any better? What's your opinion on that? I think there's awareness to this issue and so many comedians talk about it. And I think there definitely is like sort of like a support amongst other comics Mm. for free speech. You know, I'm very much a belief in free speech. One of the first shows I ever produced when I was a newbie was with some of the best comics that are on the road. I mean, on the road, in the world today. Um, It was like 2004, three and it was mm. Jim Norton, Patrice O'Neill, Rich Foss. Uh, I can't. We, we I used to do the show called Great American Trash Bash, Freedom of Speech, <laughs> the Ultimate. This is before you know, and I I believed in free speech as a very new comic because I think that there's no other thing more freeing than stand-up comedy. Like Lenny Bruce, you know, mm. you know he was in jail for saying bad bad words. Right. You know? Right. And. I think there is a cancel culture, obviously, and I think there is a backlash against the. Can- I think the awareness of the ca- cancel culture within the comedy community has gotten very strong, and I think, you know, the comedians are supporting each other in that backlash. So we're kind of like rising above, so to speak, mm. um, as best we can. I think in certain circles, like there is that more uh, cancel culture type situation, but I think. For most of my friends here in New York, we're just like going for it. You know, we're saying what we want, doing what we want. Um, I think the New York City clubs are supporting us as well. I don't know. And, and clubs on the road as well. So I'm right. hearing different stories. Uh, 
you know, there are shows I will get hired for where they'll say, you know, be clean or mm. don't talk about divorce. Cause you know, it, you know, these are private shows. Right. Uh, right. Oh, right. But when it comes to the general consensus of comedy clubs, I think that there's, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag depending on where you are, what club it is. But I find in my circle that the comedians are very supportive. A lot of them are from the same radio genre that I'm from. And we're just kind of like, go for it, say what you want. And we're here. You know, it's funny you mentioned some of those guys, uh, Voss and Norton and Patrice and all those. I, I mean, you literally just recited the murderer's row of cringe comedy oh, yeah. as far as I, I'm concerned, I've, right? They're great. Yeah, amazing. And, and, um, amazing guys. And you're talking, I, and I think you're, we're, we're probably weaned in the same area of radio, uh, you know, the Opie and Anthony area, the Ron Bennington area, uh, the Howard Stern era. So, uh, you know, I think we're kind of aligned perhaps in our comedy uh, leanings and appreciations. Um, so what one of the things that I was trying to think of when it came to something like this is yes, private shows, you're absolutely right. You know, if you've agreed to work clean and then you don't work clean, all right, you should get some flack over that. Right. I don't know that you should be canceled, but yeah, you agreed to do a clean show. You didn't do the show, but the girl's got to earn a living, you know? <laughs> hey, 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 you know, we all do. Right. So, but, but to the extent that, you know, it's not just the, it's not necessarily the clubs. It's, I'm wondering the culture in general, Stacey, when someone says, you know what, I'm going to go out for a night of the town. I'm going to choose to go to a nightclub that I know people are going to try to make me laugh. Some will work, some won't, but I'll walk away offended and I'll walk away complaining and file a complaint and take it to the press and go to blog, you know, before the show is over, I'm blogging on my iPhone. This comedian is anti-woman, this comedian is anti-gay or whatever the case may be why are we sensitive? This is like the worst Orwellian nightmare. It's, it's not, not the, the place. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, John, it's not the place. You know, there's places to be offended, so to speak. Like right, right. if someone's, you know, rights are being taken away and they're not able to, you know, get a job because of their race, color, creed, whatever. I get that is a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a situation where their livelihoods are, but a comedy club is mm. the safe, if, I don't want to use the word safe space, <laughs> but it is the, it's the place where we can be uh, offensive, so to speak, or mm -hmm. non-offensive, or just say our feelings. Oh, this is my point of view. I mean, I had a complaint once uh, from a customer that I talked about divorce mm -hmm. at, a, at a baby shower. I was hired to do a baby shower. Right. Uh, this is a couple of years ago. And, and the jokes were funny. And, <laughs> but they were like, how can she talk about divorce at a baby shower? Right. And it wasn't like I'm saying you're going to get divorced. I was talking about my divorce. This is my story. I was just told, you know, they knew my act. Right. But, for, you know, that offended them because maybe it brought up some issues or whatever. I don't know. Right. Not my responsibility, right? right? I did. I was clean about it. I wasn't dirty. And, and I followed the, the protocol of what I needed to do for the show. Right. But, you know, my reality shouldn't offend somebody else. And, it, right. and so in your reality, should defend, if I'm telling a story and I'm not doing a call to action, like kill women or do this or, <laughs> you know, kill people of color. I mean, I, that's one thing, but I'm just talking about my experiences or what I went through. It shouldn't have, you know, to get offended. It's very selfish. <laughs> it's very self-righteous. Self yeah. I, I don't know. It's a weird. And, and the, the, the in the form of stand-up comedy, it's the one place left for true freedom of speech. 
Right. And without laughter, there's no, you know, healing without difference of opinions or different points of view. There's no learning about anybody else. You can't I, co- go through the world with tunnel vision. I, you have I, to I, be open to other points of view. And don't, if you don't think it's funny, don't laugh. That's your choice. Not to laugh or just leave. Or leave. Well, I didn't like a comedian. You know, it's more offensive to go to a comedy <laughs> club and not laugh. Like, I just, right. you know, I remember before I did comedy, I'd go to a stand-up show, pay $20 for it. And like, right. this is, I don't care what they said. They just weren't funny. Like, that's offensive. I just spent $55 at this comedy club, maybe more, right. with the two-drink minimum. And that person wasn't even funny. Never mind, you know, my moral dilemma, which I never had. But you know, that to me is offensive, you know, be funny at least, you know, if you're going to be. Yeah. It's, it's so funny that you brought up that sort of, uh, uh, one of the things, uh, uh, first of all, George Carlin, I remember one quote of his was that it's the job of the comedian to figure out where the line is and then purposely step past it. Mm -hmm. And then Patrice, uh, RIP said at one point, the comedian's job is not to make everyone laugh. If I'm doing my job as a comedian, 50% will be laughing. The other 50% will be horrified. And Patrice thought that was his job when he got up on stage, right? So I agree with you. Free speech is lost on the college campuses right now. So truly, the only place where free speech, where people can be stimulated to think, to examine their own beliefs, to look at the reality of the world, to face the horror of the world, even paradoxically in a comedy setting, is the stand-up club, is 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 the stand-up comedy to a large degree. Right. Because the other platforms we've we've seen, YouTube can take you down for using naughty words. Um, you can be censored on Twitter or Facebook or whatever for certain beliefs or utterances. Certainly all of us, I'm sure you have, I have. Um, so really the clubs are our last refuge, if not the soapbox in front of your own apartment, say, you know? So I agree with you fully. Um let me sort of now show my skills off as a brilliant interviewer and try okay. to transition a little bit. Uh, most of the comedians that I've run into, possibly with the exception of that New York crew you mentioned earlier at that particular time in history, seem to be uh, either apolitical or liberals for the most part. Um, not to tie in polit- politics directly to that statement, but why do you feel like, for example, if you were w- to walk into banks, right? 90% of the people working in big banks are going to be conservatives, right? Um, you walk into an ad agency, 90% of the people there are going to be liberals. It's the nature of the job that it draws, that attracts certain types of personalities, and those personalities align to um, well, a certain people who political People who are drawn to money are normally sometimes more conservative because, right. the, you know, the conservative uh, sent, you know, government with, the, with their with the stock market, it's all, you know, related right. to finances, really, but yeah. Right. Stand-up comedians, though, I'm having trouble understanding why they would, ne- why they necessarily seem to be com- comprised mainly of liberals. Um, I, Not I, I don't know. I think it's. I think they're open. I. I think like they don't fall. I mean, they're definitely you know right wing and left wing people, but I think a lot of people are just like making fun of everybody. Like mm. me, I, I make fun of the best comics, like Tim Dillon, for instance, who's a great comic, great yes. podcaster, makes fun of everybody. I mean, some people have their own leanings, but I, I think that a really good comic will call out the whole crew and all their bu- BS, right. you know, their bullshit. I don't know if I could say bullshit. On no, you. say bullshit. You can say you bullshit. I, I don't even know what you can say anymore. Like, censored. Right. Um, I used to do debates. Well, we'll go into May, sure. my mayor run. And being a stand-up, I, you know, I say bad words sometimes. as mm. Bad words. So I have, <laughs> I had to really re- reel it in. I wanted to say bullshit. 
right. you know, during debates. And like, I never was able, you know, I had to like, you know, my campaign manager be like, no, no. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. you mentioned Tim Dillon, for example. Like, I don't know if people know this. And he said it like he's a gay man. He He's originally out here from Long Island. He went ended up going to Hollywood. Trash is just about everybody. Half the time, you don't know if he's being serious or sarcastic or, you know, he has a great um, dry sense of humor about him. It's great. And to me, he's he's perfect. And and actually, more so than a stand-up, I mean, his stand-up is, is good, but I think it's not as polished as his podcasting is, where on his podcast, he really shines, you know, like- oh, He's amazing. He's the one podcast I listen to, like, often. Like, I really listen to Tim Dillon. Like, whenever I'm in a bad mood, I'm like, I'm going to listen to a Tim Dillon episode, and I just, like, laugh. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, when I'm, when I'm feeling blue, I'll pull up uh, old routines of- um, uh, Patrice, obviously, from his ONA days. Rest in peace. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, it's not a stretch to say that I got my show at Sirius strictly by listening to Patrice on ONA and those guys and Ron Bennington. I was so enamored. Oh, with I the love way they Ron. Talk. Ron is such a great guy. Is it, is, and he went and out Jim of his way. A, yeah. And yeah. he went out of his way to help me. Like, how many people in radio will go out of their way to help a nobody? I got started in radio in my mid 40s, which That's is awesome. almost unheard of, right? So, um, uh, much respect to those guys, but like when you look at those guys, you know, and the way they started and everything, the radio they did. But but other than that, it, some of these standups when they start up, they, it's always stories about I had a horrible life growing up. I'm insecure. I have this. I have that. And most of that is what I think leads to that liberal tendency, right? So if you're a perfectly secure, comfortable, earn a living type of person. You're not drawn to stand up, right? Life is good for you. You've got nothing to complain about. But I think it's, and again, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush, uh, broad stroke here, but um, do you think that has something to do with why, like, I mean, stand up comedy, let's be honest, even though there are all stripes in there, is largely perceived as a progressive or liberal type of lean. I right? think it's progressive because it's open. Mm. Liberal maybe not politically, but liberal in the way we speak, right? Sure. You know, you're not going to go to a country club and a conservative country club and start, you know, talking about your vagina. True. You can go to, you know, a comedy club, be a conservative and still talk about your vagina. So. I know maybe... I do. <laughs> or you, yeah. Or whatever you have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm drunk. Oh yeah, of course. But, um, okay. So, so now having said that, uh, I'm interested in your growth transitioning from a comedian to an activist to a politician but also along that path how did you realize you were a libertarian because most people aren't born libertarians in my experience right they kind of arrive at libertarianism it's it's an evolution towards a right like some people say i'm a born democrat especially in new york right i'm a born uh you know union loving democrat or i'm a born gun loving republican and that's the way i was raised very few people, you hear that from very few people saying I was a born libertarian from day one. As soon as I became politically aware, I knew I was a libertarian. How did you, is that the case for you? Did you arrive no, at libertarianism? No, I wasn't that political. Like, um, so interesting, my mom was a Democrat. I think my father leaned more toward the right. So I became a libertarian. I'm, I'm kind of very mixed in my views on different things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very open to every side of, of the arguments. Right. And... You know, and I had, you know, I, I've, I've had conversations, you know, in, in the Libertarian Party with so many different types. And 
learning more about sort of like what, you know, what certain, there's certain like points of view that each party has that are kind of like their strength. And I think the, the thing that drew me to libertarianism is the freedom, the mm. word freedom. I've always liked the word freedom. To me, it meant saying what I want, living my life the way I choose, doing what I want with my money. I always felt that that really resonated with me. And as I learned learned uh, more about our government and how it works, running for office, because I did never knew how the ins and outs right. of elections, you know, um, like they really don't want a third party in there. Like they will fight you to get off the ballot. Luckily, I had a great team that stuck, left, let me get on the ballot. That was one of the hardest things to do in the whole, right. you know, other than trying to win an election, you know, <laughs> as a libertarian, uh, getting on the ballot as a libertarian, where we lost our ballot access, you know, uh, yes, absolutely. Right after Larry Sharp had been on the ballot as a libertarian. So, you know, it makes you really see government differently, you know, no matter what party you are, right? It, you right. see it differently. It's, it's like, it's basically like two sides that just control everything, you know, and it really is a duopoly it, 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 of, there's there's no doubt about that. Like when you ran in 2021, uh, so so for those that don't know, uh, we did have Larry Sharp on the show, and he did actually bring up the fact that he had been kicked off the ballot after getting ballot access by running for governor the previous uh, yeah, go he around, did very well. He did and he so did well. very well. Yeah. So we all thought, and I'm a med registered member of the LP, so I I was like, yeah. hey, great, we've got ballot access. You know, that's literally 90% of the battle, like you said, right? And the next thing I know, it's like Larry was on my show complaining, like saying, we just got kicked off, Big John. It, and he actually said it's actually more difficult to get on the ballot in New York than it is to get in Russia at this point. Yeah, I mean, really, that was the hardest. I mean, just to get on the ballot and, and um, you know, Paul, my campaign manager, like, you know, it was like amazing. Like he mm. got, he fought for all the candidates. He was like, he knew exactly how to do it. He was great. We had um, the signatures and that was a big leap. That was very hard. And I don't think anybody understands that is the hardest thing to do. So give the folks a little bit of a taste. Like what, how many signatures, for example, do you need in New York City oh, to be on the ballot? 30,000 or some, maybe more. I don't remember. And it was during COVID. So no one's mm. coming over to you. Right. So 21, 2020, 21, signing your, and, and you only have a few weeks to get them too. So you don't right. have that, you know, people weren't still wearing masks a lot and they weren't coming near you. And it was just a, but I had a great team and, you know, it was just, we did it. We got it done, but it yeah. was one of the hardest things to do. And it cost my campaign the most money. Well, yeah, because people don't realize if you need 30,000, let's say the cutoff is 30,000 or the qualification is 30,000, that means you probably have to get double that. You have to get 60,000. Oh, yeah. Because they're, they're going to they're gonna disqualify signatures if the wrong color ink was used. That's a disqualifier. You know, there's all these technical things that are in place to keep the two major parties in power so they can never have a threat. Um, but I'm not you, sure it's 30,000. I might be wrong. I could right, well, that. It was a lot. I don't want to say the wrong number, but yeah, yeah. it was a lot of freaking signatures. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I know. It was, it was piles and piles of these, you know, right. And they have to be like, and then they, they scour through them. And then we got, um, somebody challenge them. That's, you know, they challenge you It's the whole thing. It's not, it's like, it's like a whole battle to get on the ballot. 
So well, it was never so mind fun. winning an election or even coming close to winning. That's like a whole nother level. Right. That's it's like you think you've gotten through the hard part and then you still have to win the election. Right. And because I went to vote for you guys. And honestly, um, when I got to the polling place, I had, been, you know, uh, Larry had let me know, like, hey, Big John, we got kicked off the ballot. So everybody, you know, has to write us in. You know, that's oh, the only way, you know, in, yeah. so I went in and I wrote him in. But the polling place wouldn't accept my ballot. They started giving me excuses like, oh, the machine can't read an old because I wrote in everybody. I will not cast a vote for a Democrat or a Republican at this stage. So everything was a write-in vote for me. And where there was no libertarian. Like, what is ca- this? What yeah, essay? Yeah. What do you do? Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's like I was going to get the A plus, you know. And when there was no libertarian candidate, I wrote in my own name. And I just oh, said, that's, that's my ballot, you know. And the poll workers were all scratching their heads and, you know, like they thought they had a plate of plutonium in front of them, you know. And they said, well, do us a favor. Why don't you go put a couple of down for a Republican or or a Democrat just just so the machine will read it and we'll keep the rest. And I was like, no, no, I'm not moving. I'm recording you guys. This ballot better. I don't care if it's the one ballot in the state that has all this nonsense written on it. You're accepting it. Literally, I had to stay there until an hour later. They put it in a plastic bag. You know, they had to seal it like you know, right. official ballot and then put it in the, in the strong box. But that whole experience combined with what Larry had told me and what you're telling me now, people don't realize it's not a matter of, Oh, we'll vote for Stacy. You know, if she's running for mayor. We'll vote for her. We'll vote for Larry Sharp. He's running for governor. No, 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 no. There's, there's evil forces. Like he, the libertarians had one ballot access in what was it? 2020, correct? Or 2018? 2018, was, I think. 2018, 2018. When, yeah, when when Larry last run for And he was governor. on the, and he, and he, he got matching funds and he was debating and yeah, it was, they didn't, I mean, but, and, 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 you know, Andrew Yang has been a big proponent for th- third parties and he has a forward party now and right. it's, and it's I know, very, it's, it's like a, you know, when, when you, I think when you enter politics as a candidate and you've never been in politics, you really see the the non, you see the nonsense, you see the hypocrisy, you see the, the, the not like you see the duopoly, you just see that it's not necessarily, you know, representative of the people. So to speak. Well, that's true in its purest form, because um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a libertarian, I'll talk to anybody about libertarianism for hours on end. But I abhor politics. So after talking all these years, my partner here at, at Sports Grumbling said, John, you got to start attending your local libertarian party meetings, because unless you understand the machinery of politics, you know, you're just like the old philosophy professor wearing, you know, the tweed jacket with the patches on the elbows and everything. I went to two meetings and I decided those were two more than I'll ever want to attend in my life. I just cannot stand the old people in a smoke filled room, literally, you know, yeah, we got to have a meeting at the diner this month. And okay, when are we going to talk about policy? Next week, you know, whatever. So I just have no patience for that sort of thing. I'd rather sit here and talk uh, core principles or, or libertarian I mean, principles. I enjoyed writing policy. One of my favorite things to do is have, we had policy meetings once a week or sometimes mm. twice a week. And we had a great team, really solid team of a great group of libertarians. Uh, we had Russ Clark and Bill, um, who ran, I think he ran for controller this year, Bill. Hmm. My brain is like my campaign manager and some other people. And they were like from all different sides of the aisle, you know? And um, we really sat down each week on Zoom and really wrote solid policies. I have 
pages still in my computer of policies mm. that we had written. Um, and I was proud of them. You know, they were, they were good policies, you know, and right. not, I don't think anyone ever really read them <laughs> other than, you know, <laughs> maybe some libertarians and people that really wanted it. And you know what? I, I would, I would like want people to debate me on them if they read them on my website and ask me specific questions. And, you know, that was great for me. I, that means they were paying attention and that was really great. And so, you know, I learned how to write policy. I learned, I understood how policy is written and how they, they put like, like for instance, the green new deal was, I kept getting hit with that. Mm. And when you really read through it, there's some great things. And then there are things that are ridiculous. Like let's get rid of all gas stoves and, you know, all this, it's like, and then let's add this. And this, has, I'm like, this has nothing to do with green living or, you know, a better environment. So it's like, you learn that they sort of like, uh, what do they call it? Pork it in. <laughs> <laughs> pork it in. Well, I don't know I if mean, that's exactly. Sort of like, <laughs> I know. Like mean, they, they add stuff. Like, so they add pork. Yeah. They bill, add pork. Yeah. And I mean, this is specifically when there's a bill, right? And they, mm. and then and both parties do this, whatever sure, pork they sure. like, whatever sure. flavor of the day. Um, and everyone's think this is the bill for this particular issue, but there's all this other stuff that has nothing to do with it. Like, you know. Well, um, Milton Friedman used to say, judge not a, a bill by its by its title, which is always sounds great, but 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 what it actually does, you know. So right. uh, I know Justin Amash, who uh, famously last session, um, while he was a congressman, left the Re Republican Party and joined the Libertarian Party. So he's officially the only Libertarian Party member of Congress in history. And um, he used to say, nobody reads these bills anymore. They just they don't. They're, and they they're just, huge. They're this big. Even my policies were this big. You know, right? <laughs> you know, like, and, you know, like you know, like you can't even carry them. Right. People read the title like the nine eleven uh, heroes fund or something, and they're like, "Well, everybody's got to be for that. Got to be for that, or else you're anti nine eleven heroes and you're and then, a piece of crap and you should yeah, die." You know, like exactly. And, like, and then you, you better and then, for this. And then you read through the thing. It's like unfunded mandates and you know we'll be paying the grandchildren of these people no matter what and you know yeah and nobody and amash was amash was just saying guess what can we read it can we vote on it can we get a week to who read this overnight that's the other thing people don't realize no they, and, they don't read that even nobody their reads it. Story, even the you know the people that work for them they don't read them so, well yeah. because they literally are given 24 hours in some cases some cases even less to read the content of a bill. They just get their party leader to say, vote for this. And then they all fall in line. There's no real debate anymore. No. Um, so that, that's a that's a horrible uh, thing for, for democracy. And I'm that even big... happens in the Libertarian Party. Like if I have a view on something, that's not libertarian enough. Or it mm. happens in, in every, you know, it happened in different ways for me and different in different subject matters at the time. So, so even like I felt it in our own party, you know, mm. so... I can imagine what it must be like to be a Republican or Democrat and feel that. Well, since you kicked open the door a little bit, Stacey, let me ask you this. Uh, the Libertarian Party of New York, um, I don't know that it's necessarily representative of what's going on around the country, uh, certainly not at the LP national level. But speaking of the Libertarian Party nationally, like, how do you feel? Are you uh, pro, con, sort of middling? on what happened with this Mises takeover. So the party basically shifting from what used to be termed a classical liberal or a minarchist party to now being a little bit more aggressive in its messaging, a little more aggressive, uh, perhaps leaning towards ANCAPs and anarchists. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you 
where do you fall anywhere on that spectrum or? Well, I, I never was with them. I never really was involved with the Macy's caucus when I was, um, I, I guess I was less on the, I didn't really follow the takeover, but I knew a little bit about mm-hmm. it as it happened. Um, I'm, I'm, I kind of don't really know what, how effective it's going to be for the party, you know, mm-hmm. and how practical it is like, I'm more a very practical person. So if it's not going to solve policy and, and solve a, a countrywide issue or a, an election issue or um, our, our economy's, you know, inflation, right. I don't think it's, you know, and really help the people at the same time. I don't know how I feel. I don't think it's a great idea if it doesn't have those qualities. Yeah. It's almost uh, like, so, you know, just for full disclosure, like I consider myself a classical liberal or a minister. Me too. That's what Paul always said. You're a classical liberal. <laughs> you probably are. So guys like Larry Sharp, for example, probably appeal very much to both of us. Right. And um, I'm assuming you're, you're, He's you're the, he, of, he had my, he, he was the head of my campaign. He was the one who, you know, nominated, like I was, he was like everything in my campaign. He's just a super guy, by the way. And, um, but when you listen to Larry Sharp talk, yes, he's a libertarian through and through. Uh, but his his solutions are very practical. To your point, when he, when he was explaining his education policy in New York, for example, okay, we're not going to privatize everything. You know why? Because nobody will go for that. But why don't we do this? Let's get school vouchers. Let's keep money with the kids and not with the buildings. You know, so so he's offering a path that if we follow it, maybe a hundred years from now, maybe for the next generation of people after you and I are long gone, they'll have even more liberty than we could get, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the anarchists, I think, not the anarchists, I should say the Mises caucus, who are probably more aligned with anarchy, um, want things now. They're tired of waiting. And to some degree, justifiably, they could say, look, we've the last three election cycles, we had great opportunities, especially on the national level. We just, the, the Libertarian Party did not take advantage of it. And, and I think things came to a head with COVID. They felt like, hey, we should have been out there protesting mandates, protesting masks, protesting everything. And it's not that I have a problem with anarchy, Stacey. Uh, I think intellectually, it's the logical conclusion of libertarianism. I just have a problem with its implementation. I just don't think, like, to your point, it's a practical philosophy, you know, just like communism. You know, if you start telling me we should all share things and teach according to its needs, you know, and all that. Yeah, that sounds great. But we all know human nature prevents that from happening, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's my issue with the Mises guys. Um, plus the fact I that- I really it, don't know. I've been out of that scene. Like, I don't know what's going on nationally for a long time. They have- I, a, I stayed out of it since my election. I didn't- And I'm not just yeah. saying that to be political. Like, Yeah, yeah, like, I got you. I, you know, I broke my ankle and had some personal stuff. I used mm-hmm. to- after my election, I kind of took a break and just like shut it down. Well, you need to recharge, right? I mean, it, it's yeah. not it's not like you have to be on all the time. So, um, well, hopefully, I'm not I'm not draining you by talking about this. No, stuff, I'm enjoying but... <laughs> it. It's nice to come back to and talk to. You know, I needed a break from mm. politics for a while. You know, I, yeah. I, and people thought I ran for like some career move, like you know, like she's a comedian. I really didn't. I ran like it hurt like you know, I didn't book anything, you know, for those a year, like almost, or not a year, but like, like I barely did shows where I would do them all the time. So it kind of hurt some stuff. Yeah. I think, I think the people in general don't understand that when you run as a third party candidate, you're taking not just a a time hit, 
a, a family hit, you're taking a huge financial hit. Like, um, again, talking to Larry, he was like, I had to shut down my consulting business. Hit, yeah. Yeah. And, and to your point, if you didn't book for a year, that's your income, right? That's your livelihood. And you're saying, I, I basically didn't get. And I didn't work. I didn't really work. You didn't I work. Worked, I barely worked. I, yeah. I that, that's crazy. Uh, that's crazy. You know, and it, I did very little like other kinds of work, you know. I, I do teaching sometimes and lecturing and I mm -hmm. haven't done, you know, so, you know, trying to get back into something and the COVID and COVID hit, like my reaction to COVID was to run for mayor, sort of. It wasn't the only reason I had wanted to do it for years, but right. it was kind of the time, okay, everything stopped. Now I could do it. It just felt right. And I, I, I asked Larry and then it went from there, but it was kind of a strange course of events. It was like, you know, I was thinking about it in 2015. I actually said it on Bob Le on the show that I did with Bob Levy, mm -hmm. Ears Wide Open, back th that far ago, that 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 long ago. Hmm. And then it it just sort of happened in 2020 slowly. And then I kind of did all the paperwork. And by 2021, I was, you know, running a campaign. Right. And um, since you brought it up, let me ask you this: what what would have been the Stacey Prussman response? To, to COVID uh, in real oh, time. Oh, I had a whole, um, you know, after like sort of things settled down at the, co I would have opened things up safely. Um, uh, we had a grading system for people that, you know, so if you, if you, you don't feel safe, you want to go to, you know, just like they have the ABC, we had a grading mm -hmm. system, how safe something would be um, by standards of the health department, whatever that might've been. Right. Um, so if people were afraid, they can go to a business with a, a one. If it was, you know, I don't, to five, we had the whole right. grading system. Right. It was, you know, uh, the mandates was, if the business chooses to have a mandate, they can have a mandate. It, it was between the person and the business. Right. So if you want to go to a mask business, go, and the people are still having, you know, are mandating in their own businesses and that's right. their priority. You don't have Correct. to know. Um, my doctor's office, I have to wear a mask to this day, you know, right. Um, yeah. the sushi restaurant I really like in the Hamptons, they wear a mask. The, we, the people don't wear masks, but the sushi <laughs> chefs are wearing masks. So I thought that was interesting. Certain yeah. businesses, you know, I see certain, uh, buildings have their doormen wear masks, certain, uh, businesses, all the employees are wearing masks. So I, I don't know, you know, if that's the choice of the employer Right. Personally, I would go nuts. You know, I give, you know, I wouldn't, I, I can't, I mean, I was wearing a mask at a school I was teaching at and it was like, I come home with sinus infections. And I would mm. get my glasses would fog up and it was like, but this is what was interesting about it. Mm. This is where it gets weird. So you wear a mask, right? Everyone's wearing a mask. The kids take the mask off. They sit at the lunch table like this, like shoulder to shoulder, no mask eating. Mm -hmm. you know, sneezing and coughing all over each other. As kids the masks do. go back on. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, you have to be consistent. If you're going to do this, you better like do the six feet. It, and, yeah. you know, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. And I say to the teachers, I'm like, so they're sitting here all day. They're schlubbering food in their mouth, <laughs> you know, coughing and sneezing, spitting on each other. Right. You know, having a great time. And then, Lunch is over, and then they're back with the masks on. It, it didn't make sense to me. You know, it's kind of 
And, you know, one of the reasons I didn't believe in federal mandates. Now, again, in full disclosure, my background initially was in biology. My wife is a microbiologist. So we kind of went along with this is a pandemic. It's contagious. Um, We prefer to, you know, if there's a vaccine, we'll probably end up taking the vaccine type of thing. I was never in line with mandates. I never thought anyone should have told anyone when to shut down, when to stay home, you know, like literally people dying and you can't, you can't go visit your loved ones in the hospital it or something became, like that. It, was, it became like a fear. It became very fear-based. Yes. It was like no one knew how to control it. It was, it was crazy. Well, that's where and... the politics came in, right? Republicans were saying this is a hoax and Democrats were saying uh, you guys are anti-science, black and forth, back and forth. And depending on where you were in the country, both of those sort of polar opposites resonated, right? In New York, we got hit hard. It was very, I mean, there were people dying. You know, there were long lines at the hospitals. I mean, in the initial phases of- Yeah, I saw it. It was horrible. It was terrible. I had friends that lost parents. It was terrible. It was horrible. But if you were in the middle states of America, you know, if you were, you didn't, there were empty, you know, nobody had COVID. And you know, there's there's reasons it for that. Came later on, like you know, but people, it wasn't as, it wasn't the same. Right, it wasn't it wasn't pandemic level yet. You know, so I could understand where people would have very different opinions and experiences, um, and it really came down to population density. If you were in a dense city, yeah. you had a higher incidence. If you were out in the country somewhere or in the middle of the, you know, I'm such a New Yorker. Anything north of the Bronx is Canada. Anything west of Queens is like is is Kansas. You know that sort of thing. But, um, you know, you really have, I think the pandemic showed an appreciation for what happens in different parts of the country organically, you know, with this, with this bug as it went through the country. Um, okay. So, um, but, but generally speaking, you would have just left it as, um, you, you know, you you weren't necessarily anti-vax, were you? No, um, not at all. Like I thought, you know, if, if, you know, I believe in science Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to take the vaccine and you feel comfortable with it, great. If you don't, that's your, you know, option. I, I do think that it did help, you know, lessen the pandemic a bit, you know, and, and people's symptoms, but I'm not a doctor and nor am I a medical person, but, you know, I have, I've had other vaccines. I've had, you know, uh, you know, whatever measles vaccine, right, right, you right. know, polio. Have, yeah. So no, I was never an anti-vaccine at all. I no, was that's... like, you know, vaccine choice. Um, you know, look, I, my neighbor here, my mom's neighbor, they didn't get vaccinated. They were older and the the husband died, you Mm. know, of COVID like the summer of 2020, I think or or winter. And, you know, and it was bad. It was sad, you know? Yeah. I think. I think we went past two levels of those polls. No, it was 2021 after he could have gotten the vaccine. Yeah. But, you know, I think the 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 part, the segment of the right that said this thing is a hoax, I think they begrudgingly started to say, no, it was a real disease. It wasn't a hoax. Um, and well, those I mean, on- Trump's, you know, whatever they did, the vaccine like he was, which for they didn't ama- play that game, <laughs> their hero, you know, uh, amazingly, there are people who somehow have disconnected from that, you know, like somehow Trump is a hero, but he had nothing to do with the hoax. And I don't understand that part of it, but also on the left, you're getting things like, um, no, um, the lockdowns were a good thing. Were they blanket? 
No. Not for that long. Not no. not for half. Maybe. Initially. Maybe the first month. Yeah. Maybe the second month. Maybe like, and then no. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with like, you. I yeah. agree with you. Uh, you know, I mean, just... until they got things under control and, you know, got a glimpse of what was going on. I'm not, I, you know, I, not like year, not like a year. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, that, I, you know, that was crazy. Yeah. 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 And when you consider what, like even during the Trump administration and then made worse by the Biden administration is all the trillions they're piling on in debt that, you know, people wonder why we have such high inflation. Well, you know, we, we printed what, $4 trillion worth of extra debt to deal with COVID supposedly. Well, now the chickens are coming home to roost. So, so yeah, that whole pandemic thing, if anything showed you a glimpse of why libertarianism is a, is a viable <laughs> choice in our lives, it would have been the pandemic on a lot of different fronts, social, economic, political, a, a whole bunch of things. All right, Stacey, thank, uh, that was a good conversation on that. All right, so now I want to get into the part of the interview that I call s- silly questions. So I'm going to oh, fire okay. these out at you. Uh, feel free to answer them any way you see fit. Well, the first question you kind of s- sort of answered already, but I'll throw it out at you anyway. Sure. Uh, what type of a libertarian do I identify as? And if you, you know, I know you kind of said minarchist, but like, for example, give us uh, maybe a couple of highlights of some things like, it, had you got an elected mayor, what would have been like your top two or three policy initiatives? Um, wow. I would have de- democratized education so people can choose how they go to school, where they go to school mm-hmm. and how they learn. So kids could really enjoy school again, not okay. make it like a prison. Because I work in the schools and it's like, ugh, it's right. very, either it's very interesting. So, and a lot of the private schools are very kind of fun and the kids are having a good time. And like, why can't the, the public schools be like that too? They're like, you know, military academies practically, particularly the charter schools. They wear the uniforms, there's very, you know, so, but if you want your kids to learn that way, great. You know, right, right. Um, I would, one of, it was like, what my, my slogan was wake the F up NYC. Right. <laughs> so New York used to be the city that never sleeps and it fell asleep. Right. I wanted it to have nightlife again, you know, like people, you know, opening more restaurants and, you know, having more, the arts come back. And I felt like as an artist and as someone who's been an actor and a comedian, like I see sort of like there are pockets of it, but we need more of it. So I would have really focused on, on the culture because that brings in tourism and that brings in money. I agree with you. I mean, um, I, I'd venture a guess that you're not a day over 29, but uh, I've certainly been around a lot longer. And I Probably do remember, not, but, thank you. I, <laughs> but I do remember the days when New York City really was a wild, interesting place. I remember being a teenager and walking around Times Square when there was apps way before Disney, way before Oh, yeah, me too. I do. Redeveloped, right? And I mean, yes, it was dangerous. There's no doubt. But the wonderful character, the characters you would just see on the subway were incredible. And New York City to me now has lost that. It's become so sterile. The pandemic helped that along. But I mean, there's two things. It's very wealthy. Like it's Mm. like the apartments that were like 1 million or like 5 million, right? Mm. So, or a $500,000 apartment is now double or triple that right. so like the middle class can't even buy a place rents have gone skyrocketed because the interest rates have gone so high people can't afford to buy so they're renting right so right. where a, a studio apartment for an artist would be like 15 to 1800 dollars is now like 28 to 38 you know maybe right. more for right. a, a box you know so that we're losing that like we're losing the artists the people that are not you know mega wealthy or working in 
financial tech or, you know, we're losing that kind of like soul. We, we're, and, I mean, lost... you can't control that, but it, it evolved into that, right? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a composite of a lot. Of, I used to do a bit called the things I hate when I leave New York. And one of my, one of the worst things I hated was when you leave New York, you're in the middle of the country somewhere like Kansas or something. People are perpetually nice and peppy to you. Good morning. How you doing? They always have a smile on their faces. And as a New Yorker, I would just grunt at them. Like, where's my coffee? Get out of my way. Like I'd be half asleep in the elevator heading to a meeting or something, you know? And unfortunately, I think that sort of what used to be out there in my view is now in New York, you know, that, um, Everyone wants New York to be New York, but nicer. They want it to be New York, but, you know. Toned uh, down, yeah. Toned down, not as nasty. And the part of what made a city like New York so great was all these different people, all these different personalities in the same melting pot, bouncing off each other. As long as they're not hurting each other, that was perfect, you know, and maybe that that existed for a while, say in the late seventies, early eighties, maybe, or something like that. But. Well, I also know New York's become a franchise. There's so many franchise businesses, like, sure. like in the fitness industry, like Orange Theory Fitness and Club Pilates, you know, there's so many, like, you you know, we have targets now. It's like, mm. we never would have, a, we, we never really, saw, I remember when Kmart came to New York, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe. So that it's hurt becoming me. like, people are just <laughs> taking up our real estate, you know, cause they have, you know, they're able to afford the rent, right? So these big, yeah companies that are all over the country are here now where you wouldn't see a you know uh pf changs in the city there's a gigantic one in union square there's like olive guard you know we have all these places that like you could see anywhere in the country right. so coming here it's not a big deal it's like oh we have it in kansas we have you know in you know wisconsin but yeah. not, no offense to those states <laughs> i'm saying but right. the main new york is like all the little you know, non sort of franchise places or non branded. Oh, you know, I, I come very close to violence when I see someone order Pizza Hut or Domino's in New oh, York City. Oh, especially in New York, right? In New like, York City. Yeah. I, look, when I'm on the road, I'll order from them just because if they're the only thing open at 10 o'clock or whatever, obviously. But but if if you're in New York City, I don't care what time of day it is or, or night, if you're ordering Domino's or... Um, or Pizza Hut, you need to be shot. Like, I, there's there's probably a, a better pizza joint no more than 10 minutes in any direction that you head. So uh, that's an anathema to me. It's an infamy. I can't, I can't tolerate that. Okay. Transitioning on food. What's your favorite comfort food when you're all stressed out and everything? What would you like to sit down and, and pizza? Sort of, pizza. <laughs> that's it. Pizza. Just plain old pizza or any Just special plain, type of way? Like a nice slice of pizza, like a plain margarita. Or Marguerite, that's like, you know, like a plain, yeah. you know, triangle. A triangle, cheesy slice. Actually, Perfect. my favorite pizza place in New York just closed Lenny's Pizza that was on 86th Street oh. in Brooklyn that was on the in the movie Saturday Night Fever closed like last week I was, or two weeks ago was it? That I went to the closing of it. Yeah, yeah those old places are going. Um, my place growing up in the Bronx is closed. Uh, and it was funny because I found out later it used to be Larry Sharp's joint too. Uh, oh, what place called, is it? Uh, Pugsley's. Used oh, to be heard, ne- yeah. Yeah, it used to be near Fordham University. And uh, that was our, that was, I mean, I practically live in there when I went to college. But uh, yeah, that ended up closing down, I guess, because of the thing. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, you know, when those old, uh, I mean, I understand the economics of it and being a pure capitalist, hey, businesses fail, new ones take their place, but it still doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. Somebody, uh, they, the place closed because the guy retired, you know, 
And mm. he just, I don't know, maybe they had the, the building, they sold the building, and then they made a few million dollars. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, also uh, Polito's in Astoria. If you ever oh, okay. go to that joint. I used to live in Astoria, yes. I yeah, yeah. Uh, so in, the, in that melange of Greek businesses, Polito's stood out. I think they were on um, off 31st Avenue, I think. But anyway, uh, they used real olive oil in their pizza. So yes, it, I used to go there. Yeah. I lived there for like 10 years. Oh, Astoria. fantastic. It was delicious, but it felt like you had a brick in your stomach for the next three days. But, <laughs> uh, all right. Who's on your Mount Rushmore of comedians? Oh, wow. I never thought about that. Um, my Mount Rushmore of comedians. Um, so you're t- say your top four or five comedians. Lenny Bruce. Okay. Um, my friend Rick Shapiro. Who, okay. Yeah. Um, and Joan Rivers. And Joan Rivers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those uh, are a little bit old school. I wouldn't have guessed that from you, but all very super talented, especially Joan Rivers. I don't know that too many people appreciate uh, between her and like Moms Babley and Phyllis Diller, what they had to go through as uh, female standups back in those days and, and the pioneers they were in the fifties and the sixties to, to, for, I guess for you being their uh, comedic uh, descendants, so to speak. Right. So right. yeah, that, that's, that's, great... the, you know, for a lot of those people, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So what I do. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Rick Shapiro is not someone that gets mentioned a lot, by the way. You know what? He is such a brilliant comic. He's been ill for a few years and he was right. one of my, one of my best friends. He's like a brother to me. Mm. And if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have started doing stand up. Rick he Shapiro kind of, was on, uh, was he on Lucky Louie? I think mm-hmm. he played yeah, the brother. Okay. He was brilliant on it. Yes. He, I, that's why I wanted to make sure that my memory hasn't failed me on that. You're thing. Right. It, it, he was on Lucky Louie. Okay, great. Fantastic. Not, I mean, just cause he's not performing as much like let's right. not forget him. Yeah. No, no, he absolutely. Deserves, he definitely deserves accolades and yeah, yeah. a lot of comics love him. And you know, he's, he really, his brain is amazing. Brilliant comedian. Um, conversely, your Mount Rushmore of political figures. Who who would you say uh, kind of inspires you on a political level or, or leadership level? Hmm. Past or present is fine. Well, no one now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Uh, Larry Sharp. Good answer. John F. Kennedy and. Hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt. Hmm. That's an interesting mix. Very interesting mix there. A little bit of everything, you know. Um, I'm very eclectic in my views, like on different things. I pull from different, you know. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We don't need to be monolithic in anything. Right. So I'm not, I'm, there's nothing about me that's like <laughs> bottled, you know. So, so let me see if I can break that down a little bit. Larry Sharp, obviously, because you know him and he helped out and he's a good libertarian, a practical libertarian. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, obviously, for uh, the empowerment of uh, for women, especially in the 40s, that um, she certainly and she was probably the most active first lady in history. I, w- I would venture a guess to say yeah. I think I don't even think it's close. And um, JFK specifically. Now, I'm going to pressure a little bit. Why JFK? Well, I think he you know, whenever people talk about him, just he brought the country, he made the country feel good. Mm. And I think we need that. So it was that spirit of Camelot that you really... Yeah, need. like we need something like that. Like Excellent, yeah. Well, Sometimes lead- we just need to feel good to, yeah. to, do, to do better. Yeah, well, certainly one of the jobs of leadership is to inspire. A good leader inspires. Even if they can't do something themselves, they can inspire others, you know? So that's certainly a valid I think, quality. I think and I, I've always hear old timers, you know, like 
you know, like people talk about him all the time. Mm. Well, certainly uh, there's no doubt that whatever you think of him politically and, and I'm, I have mixed feelings about Kennedy, honestly, uh, with some of the moves he made, but the one thing right. I can't deny is he certainly inspired a whole generation and maybe two generations of youngsters to get into public service, whether it was the Peace Corps uh, or to go into uh, uh, education. I, I mean, when we talk about the liberal takeover of universities today, the way we experience it today, a lot of that probably occurred because of Kennedy, both both John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, because they inspired young people to get into positions of influence of other future generations. And that primarily took hold in things like the Peace Corps, but it also probably included the college level, the professors and uh, mm -hmm. folks who said, hey, we're going to try to inspire the next wave of students and the next generation of leaders. So I, I'm not a big fan of his politically, but in terms of that inspiration, there's no doubt I could definitely see that. Uh, okay. And the, the final uh, silly question is, uh, if you're by yourself, door is shut, no one's watching, no one's listening. Uh, who do you uh, play air guitar to? Oh, wow. Oh, oh, definitely Kate Bush. Kate Bush. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, I, yeah, I sing. I, I was a singer, so I just will sing. Oh, I did not know that about There's you. There's nothing yeah. private about my, you know, yeah, no, I won't, I'll open the door and sing. And I don't know Tori Amos, too, but I, I will sing Kate to the door, to the, you know, to the cows come home. So or they I might guess... actually come home if you sing at her register. <laughs> so do you do that uh, scene from Risky? Uh, was it Risky Business? The uh, Tom Cruise sliding into the uh, with no, the microphone? No, I no, I sing. I I actually did a cabaret show a few years ago. I mean, I do oh. sing. It's like something I do. Yeah. So oh, okay. Um, I'll just I'll vocalize a lot. You know, if I don't disturb the neighbors, you know, because it's New York City, and you know. Uh, but I love singing. Like I will sing all the time. Like that's, it's music is always in my head. It's well, always in my head. Yeah. That, that's great. I'd love to hear something like that. I would have been, right. I would have been a, I would have, if I didn't do what I did, I would, would have been probably, I would probably have tried to be in a rock band. I was in a rock hmm. band in high school. I would have tried, you know, been in like a pop music band or something. And finally, <laughs> how, how's, how's our friend, the rapper Bob Levy doing these days? I haven't seen Bob in a while, but I hope he's doing great. I haven't seen him in a few Oh really? Uh, I, you yeah, know, I, I I see him online. I'll say hi, but I haven't really seen him in a while. I think uh, he's doing well. Yeah. Good, good because I I, I do catch him uh, as part of Shuli's uh, podcast. Oh, so I like often. Shuli, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, he seems a lot healthier to me now. I don't know, just good, visually, yeah, yeah. he I seems like he's, he's yeah, he he just seems like he has a more of a spring to him than than a couple of years ago. I would say, but um, well, that's good. Okay. So, uh, uh, Stacey, thank you so much for coming on thank the show. Thank you so much and, for having me. Uh, well, I really appreciate it. I know we had a little bit of a back and forth trying to get a time set, but I'm yeah. so glad we finally arranged it. Um, and please let everyone know, do you have any gigs coming up? Is there anything you want to promote? I do have um, I do have a gig coming up, which I have to do a little read for. <laughs> sure. Not here, but for them. Um, let me read what I have. I have something in... Um, uh, I have, you know, a bunch of gigs in the city, but so I, I usually tweet them out as mm -hmm. they come along. Uh, I've, I've been dealing with a move, so it's been a little crazy, but I do have a gig, um, dinner and comedy at the Keystone stage in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. I'm headlining with Mike Quinn featuring 
and I'm being supported by Joe Galetti and Matt Silvestri and Evan Weiss is hosting. Tickets are $30 online and $40 at the door and can be bought at the keystonestage.com. The event is being BYOB that bring your own booze or boobs mm. or bobs, or both. maybe. Or have, both. Or both. Or both. Yeah. Doors open at five, dinner at six, show at seven. Awesome. Hopefully everyone will immediately rush out and uh, purchase a ticket to go see Stacy and her cohorts. Stacy, you mentioned your Twitter handle. Can you give that out for the folks? It's uh, Stacy Pressman uh, on Twitter, Stacy Pressman on Instagram, uh, Stacy Pressman official on TikTok. I'm just, I just joined TikTok. Um, so follow me, subscribe, all that stuff, you know, um, StacyPressman.com. And uh, I, I usually tweet out my gigs or Instagram them, which I think is more effective mm-hmm. than, and Facebook. You know, I, I have two Facebook pages and a, and a page and, you know, I, I'm like, my Facebook is all over the place. I have two Stacey Pressman regular pages and then one, <laughs> whatever, fan page. But I, you know, I just try to post everything. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. We all have to be on social media. So everyone go follow Stacey. She's, she's a wonderful follow. Uh, she's obviously a very bright and interesting person. So, Stacy, once again, thank, thank you for you. joining us. Thank you. And everyone, thank you very much. I appreciate the time, and I enjoyed our conversation. Oh, that's that's awesome. Thank you so much. Everyone else, please join us again next time for the Big Questions with Big John, when someone else almost as interesting and lovely as uh, Stacy will be joining us. Until next time, <laughs> see you later, America. <laughs>